Hello, and welcome to Resources Radio, a weekly podcast from Resources for the Future. I'm your host, Kristen Hayes. My guest today is Dallas Bertraw, RFF Senior Fellow and Chair of California's Independent Emissions Market Advisory Committee, or IMAC. Uh, IMAC was a body created by legislation several years ago to help the state of California examine and refine its cap-and-trade program for reducing greenhouse gas emissions. We've been looking at opportunities to get Dallas on Resources Radio for some time. He's a tremendously prolific researcher, so I'm really glad that we're making it happen today and in the context of this important work for IMAC. So today, Dallas and I are going to take a deep dive into the world of California's carbon market with a particular focus on IMAC's recent report and recommendations to California's Air Resources Board. As Dallas wisely noted to me going into this recording, uh, given the size of California's economy and the sophistication of its policy designs, many other jurisdictions worldwide watch closely to see how things are faring in the state. In other words, California's climate policy success matters on a global stage. Stay with us. Hi, Dallas. Welcome to Resources Radio. It's really nice to talk with you today. Hi, Kristen. Good to be here. (laughs) Great. Well, since this is your first introduction to our listeners, although I imagine many of them have read or heard your name elsewhere, um, but still, let's start with an introduction. I'd love to hear more about your background, your interest in environmental economics. Uh, Tell us a little bit more about about yourself. Well, my graduate school training was at University of Michigan, where I had a master's in public policy and a PhD in economics. But I grew up in California, and uh, a pivotal experience that moved me into environmental economics occurred when I was at UC Davis in the 1970s as an undergraduate. PG&E, the utility that serves Northern California at the time, proposed the 1600 megawatt coal-fired power plant to be built in the San Joaquin Delta. Now, in, in retrospect, this proposal seems bizarre. But at the time, the company was one of the most powerful economic forces in the state. So. Uh, and the regulated utilities had an incentive to grow their demand and grow their sales. But the proposal was bizarre because California's Central Valley is surrounded by mountains that give rise to the worst air quality issues even to this day in the, in the nation. So we organized a grassroots campaign under the moniker Death in the Delta, walking door to door in conservative valley communities. We also unleashed a flood of research related engagement at the university like air quality analysis, health analysis, effects on agricultural productivity, etc. And our leaflets ended up on the desk of young Governor Jerry Brown, who repeatedly, we learned, asked his staff about our movement. He was already against the construction of large central station power plants in California, uh, but he needed a grassroots political movement to enable him to exercise his influence in the regulatory bodies and before the legislature. So I learned from that experience that one cannot expect the right outcomes from government without support from the affected parties. So. Sympathetic agents in government need to be and want to be supported politically and by research. So at the time, I threw myself into political activism, but over time, I migrated to environmental economics research, which landed me at Resources for the Future. Mm-hmm. Yes, and we're very, very fortunate to have had you for so many years. Um, good to know about your, you know, your history in the state of California, too. I know there are lots of reasons why that's a particularly interesting place to work, but obviously you have a personal connection there, too. So that's great. All right. So uh, let's start with some background on California's cap and trade program, just to, to set the stage for our discussion today. So um, really quickly, can you 
quickly summarize when the program was launched and maybe a little bit about what it covers and what stage it's in now. The program was authorized in 2006 by Governor Schwarzenegger, a Republican governor, uh, and uh, it was just one line, if you will, out of a small but famous piece of legislation called AB 32. Many people know it by that name. And the cap and trade program took effect in 2013 and 14 for electric utilities and industry. And then in 2015, it was expanded to be economy-wide covering transportation and uh, home heating fuels, etc. Gotcha. Okay. And so it's been up and running for eight years, let's say. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yep. Okay. Mm -hmm. Um, And as you pointed out, too, that it is only one piece of California's strategy to reduce greenhouse gas emissions. Is that right? Yeah, that's right. And it's really an important point to keep in mind that we as economists often think about the cap and trade or something like that, or or equivalently, maybe a carbon tax as just being a policy instrument that you bring in and one and done sort of thing. The California cap and trade program covers only 75% of the greenhouse gas emissions in the state. So even though we say it's economy wide, it's covering all fossil fuel combustion, uh, there's still a lot of other sources of greenhouse gas emissions in the state. So California's uh, emission reduction goals apply economy wide. And the, the trading program constitutes one major portion of the state's overall efforts to achieve that outcome. Okay. I think that's good to know because I have a feeling we'll talk later about the intersection of the cap and trade with some of the other policies that the state is pursuing to really reduce those emissions. So, um, But it's great to have that context. And I know that we're going to talk a fair bit today about the cap and trade program's allowance market. So I I wanted to get some baseline information there too, uh, in particular about the design of allowance allocation in California. So how are those allowances how are they allocated, and uh, and what happens to any revenue that's that's generated by allowance sales, for example? Okay, well, that is a key piece of the architecture for the cap and trade program. Uh, you can think that roughly half of the allowances are uh, a little less than half are given away for free to affected industry on an output basis to provide a production incentive so that they still haven't recognized an opportunity cost associated with using allowances because they could after all sell them to someone else, but they they get the allowances initially for free in order to fight leakage. And uh, because there's no benefit of having jobs leave the state and emissions leave the state only to show up somewhere else. And another chunk are given away for free to the investor-owned utilities and to the publicly-owned utilities, natural gas and electricity. And they are given uh, for the benefit of ratepayers. So for the investor-owned utilities, they uh, must consign their allowances to the auction before those allowances can be used for compliance. And then the revenues are returned to the rate base for the benefit of ratepayers. And the large majority of them are actually periodically given as dividends on ratepayer bills. Uh, the other half are of the allowances are auctioned those are you know you roughly think they comprise that portion of emissions that's associated with the transportation sector and some of the other um, sources and so i kind of refer to those as the state-owned allowances and that the revenues from that auction go to the greenhouse gas reduction fund which is intended to fund investments and other good program related things in the state. What's really important to note about that then, and it's gotten a lot of attention uh, in other states and even reflected in environmental justice 40 stuff at the federal level, uh, is that important portion of the allowance value is required to be invested in 
disadvantaged communities or go to the benefit of disadvantaged communities. And to date, over 50% of the value of those allowances have been invested in disadvantaged communities. Hmm. Okay, great. And, and just to get a little bit more specific, what what is the current Maybe I should ask, what is the historical price range for allowances? But at least, what is the current price range for allowances? And then, I don't know if you know this offhand, but kind of what's the overall volume of revenue that's been generated across these eight years of a, a functioning cap-and-trade program? Oh, those are good questions and very interesting to me. <laughs> the, uh, <laughs> the price has been hovering just above the price floor in California for several years. So the price floor most recently is up around 19 and 2022 is going to be about $19 a ton. Uh, but in the last six or eight months, there was a stark increase in prices by two-thirds. So the prices have reached up $28, $29 a ton in California. And this phenomenon mirrors what's gone on in the Regional Greenhouse Gas Initiative in the Northeast states, and especially in the in European... Europe. Yeah, mm -hmm. in Europe, where prices yeah. have gone from, well, just three years ago at five or eight uh, euro per ton to up to 80 euro per ton today. So there are some uh, dramatic changes happening in these markets. Uh, the, the value of the allowance market in California, well, swings a lot with the uh, the price, of course, there in this case. But we are talking an annual value of five to ten billion dollars per year. Hmm, okay. And, and so it sounds like the price has hovered at a pretty low level for some time and is now going up. What has led to that you know, plateau for a while, and what's led to the increase now? Well, I'd like to just take a step back and point out one other aspect of the overall program architecture in California. The the uh, primary way that emission reductions have been achieved is through regulations and standards for you know way that energy is used in the state. Uh, California has a process called the scoping plan process. It's a multi-agency project and they develop a blueprint for how the state's going to achieve its climate reductions goals. And the first scoping plan identified over 80% of the emission reductions that were need to be achieved associated with uh, regulations. And the only the remaining 20% approximately of emission reductions were associated with the influence of the cap and trade program and the price of emission allowances. The, the next scoping plans increased that share that was associated with the price effect of the cap and trade program up to the neighborhood of 40%. So to an economist, this is success to see an increasing influence of prices because of the efficiency that that approach brings to the problem. Um, so uh, the, these, the existence of these other regulations push down uh, the price in the allowance market because it's, you know, the regulations are making things happen. It's not the price that's really making things happen. And that is viewed by many observers as being like a problem in the California market. And then now we see, and in these other markets we mentioned a moment ago, now we see the prices rise in the California market. And there's uh, could be a number of reasons for that, including the increased stringency over the course of this decade that's expected from both sources covered by the cap and trade program and for the state's goals overall. Also, the expanding markets, Washington State has just uh, in 2021 passed uh, comprehensive climate legislation, including a cap and trade program that many observers uh, anticipate or hope will ultimately be linked with the Western Climate Initiative with California and Quebec, which are partners today in the in a carbon market. Uh, and then the other phenomenon that's very important to watch is the increased involvement of non-compliance entities, that is, investors or other parties that are holding allowances in these in the markets and that demand for allowances is driving up price. There's 
but I think probably the most important phenomenon is the anticipated stringency over the course of this decade. California's goal for this decade is to achieve 40% below 1990 levels of greenhouse gas emissions. And that corresponds pretty well to 40% below 2020 levels, because by 2020, the state had pretty much come back into alignment with 1990 level of emissions. So that translates into 4% per year. And that's also reflected roughly in the uh, path that's laid out for the for the cap in the cap and trade program. So that's a pretty ambitious uh, rate of emission reductions. Mm-hmm. It certainly is. Yeah. Well, it, this is a great lead-in to my next question about allowance banking. So, so let's let's turn to the report itself. And as as I noted at the at the outset, um, the report comes out from the Independent Emissions Market Advisory Committee, or IMAC, of which you are the chair. Um, feel free to mention anything you'd like about kind of the mandate of that group. But I also wanted to you know talk about the substance of your recent report, um, and in particular, it's organized into a, a few main sections. I'd love to talk briefly about each of those. So let's start with allowance banking. And what can you tell us about why the committee looked closely at the magnitude of California's allowance bank? That is, allowances that remain in circulation, but that haven't yet been used for compliance. Right. Well, yeah, banking is an important feature of the California program. It brings a lot of uh, cost effectiveness and uh, reduces cost for compliance entities. Uh, but what is noteworthy is that the size of the bank, or some, we can sometimes refer to it as the total number of allowances in circulation, has grown to be very large. And it wasn't until just the beginning of January of this year that we had the final word on what was the size of the bank at the end of the last compliance period, which ended at the end of 2020. Because there's, it takes a lot of time for you know companies to chew up and everything like that, all the accounts to be reconciled. The committee itself had been developing our own estimates about what was the size of the bank. And then now you know those estimates turned out to be pretty much spot on. And we find the somewhat sobering finding is that there's 321 million allowances that reside in private accounts. This is greater than the annual annual issuance of new allowances and greater than the projected emissions reductions that would be achieved by 2030 under the declining emissions cap at 4% per year. So it looks like while there's these very ambitious goals, there's also this large bank of allowances that could come back into the market and enable greater emissions. And further, there's another 274 million allowances in public accounts that would re-enter the program if the prices rise to a, a level that triggers a release of allowances. So uh, this poses, I don't want to say a dilemma, but a a question as to how much the cap and trade program is going to be able to contribute to achieving the overall state's goals, state's legally mandated goals. And to the extent that the cap and trade program does not contribute to emission reductions at sources that are covered by the program, that's 75% of overall greenhouse gas emissions in the state. That means that more emissions reductions have to occur at the other 25% of sources that aren't covered by the cap and trade program. And those are things like natural and working lands, uh, municipal uh, solid waste, uh, you know, methane associated with natural gas use and things like that. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So, I mean, it does seem from a kind of cap and trade novice perspective, it seems uh somewhat odd that that the bank would be of that significant a size given the the kind of other metrics that you laid out so 
but is that really a problem? Um, you mentioned that you know those allowances might flow back into the the market at some point, but but how do you think about the challenges posed by a bank of that size? And then you know were there recommendations that you and the committee offered based on your findings? Well, right, good. Well, I'm glad you asked that question because one has to be careful with the judgment about the bank. There's no conclusion one can reach based on you know, theory or costs or technology options that can be identified now about what is the optimal size of the bank. It's the it's the result of the decision of private actors, and that's the way the market is that's intended, how the market works. Yeah. intended <laughs> to work, right? right. Um, but nonetheless, it's, it's, you know, really noteworthy that the bank is of this size. So the one tangible recommendation that our committee made to the Air Resources Board was to develop metrics about the size of the bank that are visible annually or in real time so that the market participants and the legislature can better observe the prospects for emissions reductions and what's going on in the market. But beyond that, the question is, is there something that we should do about the bank. And that became the second major topic that we took up in the in the report, which is gets at market design and reform. You ready to go there? Let's go there. That sounds great. Um, yeah. And I just wanted to kind of call out for our audience. I really loved how you characterize the steps that you need to take to inform any potential reforms to the market. Um, I just thought this was such a nice summary. And, and you noted that the first step is to know the size of allowance supply, which is kind of what we were talking about before. You know, how how big is the allowance supply? How many are banked? How many are being made available. And then the second is to know if, in fact, those those numbers are a problem. Is that supply the right size or not? And then the third thing to know is what to do if it is a problem. <laughs> so um, so I just thought that was a neat kind of three-step lens. And, and based on that three-step lens, tell us a bit about what you recommended on, on potential market reforms. Right. Well, the key thing here is to uh, have some humility and recognize that our committee doesn't write regulations, doesn't make overall decisions. And so that second step, that is the step that resides with policymakers, with the Air Resources Board and or the legislature to decide if there is a problem. Once we once we give them the information about the size of the bank, is there a problem? But the committee can inform the third step, well, what might you do about it? And so we, for two or three years in a row, we have uh, taken some careful thought to questions of what do you do if there's a problem in the market needs to be reformed through some kind of adjustment to allowance supply. And we identify, well, fundamentally two different approaches. One would directly address cumulative supply of allowances that are available in the emissions market, for example, just by reducing the number of allowances that enter the auction or something like that. And this approach has been done uh, before in Reggie twice with great effect, and it's um, in the middle being implemented in the EU, uh, where uh, something equivalent to the California situation, where in 2023, if things go as expected, a, a full year's worth of allowances will essentially not enter the market in order to absorb the existing bank that already exists in the EU. And that contributes importantly to why we've seen the price go up in both Reggie and in the EU context. Um, so. This uh, is one approach, but the disadvantage of this approach is that it could be kind of like offer a market surprise. And um, and the problem with a market surprise is that it gets the possibility there could be other surprises and introduces regulatory uncertainty. It could undermine the working of the market overall. And it can appear somewhat arbitrary from an investor's perspective. Um, so a second approach would be uh, to address the price of allowances by increasing the price floor or better perhaps, uh, to add one or multiple additional price steps. So, you know, I like to say 
people who are listening to this probably have in their mind a cap and trade program, like there's this fixed supply of allowances and that's what's being bought and sold. But really we've already moved beyond that model. So you should wipe that model off your, uh, your, your mental map yep. your mm-hmm. mental map, and replace it with something that looks like a staircase that there are uh, at increased prices, there are increasing number of allowances that come into the market. And that makes the market look and act like every other commodity market in that, you know, if prices fall, you see fewer oranges coming into the market over time or less natural gas. And then as prices go up, you see a greater supply. So it's sort of a hybrid, you know, people say a hybrid between cap and trade and an attacks, but um, this isn't firmly rooted in a market context, but it, but by adding additional price steps, then uh, it, the, if the price were to come down or or uh, as it starts to move, there's a way for the uh, investors to anticipate that supply will automatically contract. And uh, th- and that would sort of provide greater governance for the direction of prices going into the future. Overall, because of the responsiveness of the demand for allowances to the price of allowances, we would expect the value of the market. You asked earlier, and I said, oh, you know, something five to $10 billion per year in that neighborhood. But it, if there was a restricted uh, quantity of uh, allowances in the market, the um, price would go up. And also the overall market value uh, would go up. That price would rise by more than the quantity that's being constricted. And so this is uh, potentially uh, an opportunity because it could mean that there could be more value going to the greenhouse gas reduction fund which in turn makes more money for investments in climate-related goals, especially funds that are being directed to disadvantaged communities, which has been a major concern of the legislature. Um, however, and now I know I'm getting pretty in the weeds here, but this is a final thing that I that I would like people to appreciate because it's probably not anticipated by others. I mentioned that the utilities consign their allowances to the auction. Um, those allowances get sold before any of the other uh, auction allowances do. So if anything were to happen through a price trigger that contracted the supply of allowances in the market, it's the state-owned allowances that wouldn't get sold, not the utility allowances. Uh, and even more so, if you know if you were to continue to give free allocation to industry and and the utility allowances all continue to get sold and then something is going to adjust supply and it's only that then it's only that sort of residual part which is the state-owned allowances that are getting buffeted around by changes in the allowance price it could really cause a, a lot of political disruption because these investments are a really important uh, glue for the coalition that's holding together the state program. So the committee made a succinct recommendation. A two-part recommendation is one that all free allowances should be consigned to the auction and the value of those allowances then going back to the parties that originally received them so that it just, I mean, that way everybody should be indifferent to that because they're getting the same value, but it makes the whole thing more transparent. And then secondly, any adjustments to supply should be proportionally applied to every source of supply so that there's not a favoring going to utility customers or to industry as opposed to the communities that are receiving the benefits of the greenhouse gas uh, reduction fund. Okay. A very meaty set of recommendations there. It'll be interesting to see, as you point out, you know, the ultimate decisions are made by the, the policymakers themselves, but um, but clearly you've, you've given them a lot to think about in terms of how they might move forward. So there are two other sections in the report. Maybe we can just touch on those briefly too. So next up is the, I would say, the ever, ever challenging topic of, of offsets. And uh, my understanding is that the state has several offset protocols, but 
um, I believe you mentioned that forests constitute about 80% of, of supply to date. Right. Um, right. Okay. So how has the availability of offsets um, affected California's carbon market to date? And does the committee have any recommendations uh, related to that offset protocol moving forward? Well, I can tell by the way you gingerly approach the subject, Kristen, is you, you, <laughs> you appreciate that offsets are a controversial topic. Yeah. Um, most of the science would support the idea that there are potentially substantial emission reduction opportunities in forest and agriculture and, you know, outside the sources that are covered by the cap and trade program. But the challenge is an economic and institutional one in motivating and validating these reductions that they actually occur. And so in the context of our market, offsets exacerbate the supply problem because they're additional compliance instruments and they expand the, the volume. When I talked about the size of the banks, there's then also the possibility of, well, written in now the design that there will be additional offsets also available. So that expands supply. And against all this, there is still a, I don't want to say raging, I like to think it's constructive, but there is a deep conversation continuing to go on about the validity of uh, different types of offsets and whether a ton is a ton, whether, you know, whether... And uh, for how long, yeah. And for how long, yeah. So uh, some a lot of that's beyond my expertise, but the committee is knowledgeable about that. Um, so we identified potential reforms here too. Um the reforms that we nominate are that, first of all, that there, there should be a comprehensive ex post assessment of emissions changes associated with offsets, and then and then adjustment allowance supply could be done in response. Uh, you know, if it turns out that, that these uh, emission reductions associated with forests are not permanent, say because of the forest fires, for example, um, then, then the state could retire additional allowances. Uh, a second is to count offsets under the cap. And this is really simple, but really a big uh, change in direction. So the offsets are like added on top of the cap. So if you had a cap of 100 tons, and then you could do 4% of that could be offsets, then it really, if you bring offsets in there, um, it allows the other emissions to still occur. So the offsets are outside the cap. But the new program in Washington state is uh, the legislative language directs regulations to be developed that would have those offsets count underneath the cap so that if offsets sets from forest or whatever were to brought into the market, then that would be a ton per ton, fewer allowances that would actually be issued. Uh, the, the approach that I think is best, not politically easy to achieve, is to move all or a portion of the offset funding outside of this sort of engagement of private parties in terms of buying them as compliance instruments and fund them directly through the Greenhouse Gas Reduction Fund. So. If, uh, that would allow for a fuller accounting of the multi-attribute aspect of offsets. You know, how do they deliver um, environmental benefits to the state? How are they affecting disadvantaged communities? Things like that. So that's what the, we had to say about offsets. And I'm sure that offsets are going to remain a continuing conversation in California. Mm -hmm. I'm sure they are, as they are pretty much everywhere. Well, okay. So finally, in the report, kind of the, the last major section, um, you and the other committee members spend some time discussing leakage, which I know is a, a pretty critical consideration in any sort of limited jurisdiction cap and trade program. So is leakage, in fact, a problem, even with the safeguards that California has put in place within its program? Um, and, and to the extent that it is a problem, does the committee suggest any any reforms? That's a great question. And um, 
I, and I have to in part answer this just from my own personal opinion, not something that was a finding of the committee. My personal opinion is no, leakage is not a problem in California. But yes, it could be. And it would be if it wasn't for the measures that the state is taking. But really, it's very difficult to assess leakage uh, especially uh, where a lot of attention has been on uh, in the power sector, because there's you know power flows in and out of the state, and there's a number of measures we I don't want to go into describing too much detail to try to account for that and mitigate that. But um, the way the state deals with this for the electricity sector is through a border carbon adjustment. That is that um, the entities that bring electricity into the state, they have to surrender emission allowances associated with the emissions intensity of that power. Uh, and um, more recently, there is the energy imbalance market, which is a emerging day ahead market that really adds a lot of efficiency to the Western power grid, including a more timely uh, um, use of renewables within the Western grid. So it's a really a key element to expanding the role of renewables and electricity generally. But that kind of uh, market is a pooled market and you, you really can't identify contracts that impose an obligation on some party to retire allowances. So the state has uh, retired millions of allowances after doing modeling ex post to say, oh, well, what is the leakage that we estimate was associated with the emissions imbalance market? And our recommendation is that the state consider expanding that to the day ahead market, which could well emerge in the next few years and over the large set of Western states. The second part of the leakage question has to do with industry, where there is output-based allocation for industry that I already mentioned. And uh, the modeling evidence is that it, if it were not for this output-based allocation, there would be important leakage. But to date, I have not seen any evidence that suggests that there is leakage. And in fact, because of this output-based allocation, um, some elements of industry have actually become fans of the program because they've along with you know, their compliance obligation, there have been direct engagement by state agencies and awards by state agencies to sort of drive innovative investments in, in dairy and in food processing and uh, et cetera, which are really important parts of California economic landscape. So um, the industry side, it seems to be holding up pretty well. Hmm. Okay. So just to, to summarize that point, then it does sound like, again, I recognize that as you caveated, you know, this is your opinion, but, but your sense is that California has actually done a pretty good job at putting in safeguards and figuring out what data they need to understand the magnitude of the leakage problem and then taking actions accordingly. So there may be some reforms, but in general, and of course, this is an, an issue that's important to, to watch moving forward. But, um, but yeah, this sounds like a, a relative success story so far. Is that, is that fair? That's good, but I have to caveat what I said in one regards that it's that it is tough to know what the leakage is in the power sector, and I think um, a lot of observers just because it seems like what we, they say contract laundering could occur, and as you know, economic incentives are that it will occur. So it, it may be difficult to observe, except with simulation modeling. But empirically, it's very difficult to put your finger on. Uh, so. Um, yeah, there, there may be some happening in the power sector, but the reason I don't uh, fret that it's a huge problem is that the transition in the whole Western power grid is so dramatic, in large part influenced by California as the major power buyer in the state, the move away from coal to natural gas and increasingly the move from natural gas into renewables throughout the Western states means that the Western grid has become increasingly clean over time. So while leakage is a concern in the short run, and nobody likes to be, 
you know, not getting a, the tons reduced that we want to get reduced. The overall trend in the power sector is really encouraging, and that is reinforced by the rules and regulations in the California program. Hmm. Great. Okay. Oh, Dallas, I knew this was going to be a really meaty conversation. I'm so glad that our listeners got to really get a sense of the depth of your expertise in this area. So uh, it's been it's been great. And thanks for talking us through it. So I did want to close with our regular feature, Top of the Stack. And I'm actually particularly curious to know what's on the top of your stack, Dallas. Any more good content? It could be a book, could be an article, something academic, something non-academic uh, on this topic or not. But anything you'd want to recommend to our listeners? Yeah, I'll tell you, Kristen, I've been pouring through a book that came out last year called In the Struggle by Daniel O'Connell and Scott Peters about California agriculture. And uh, some people may be familiar with the 1902 Reclamation Law, which provided federal funding for water development in California with the promise of land for small family farmers. But that promise was never fully realized. It was fought and undermined and finally eviscerated in the 1980s. And so a huge power shift and economic shift in California. And, and as you probably are aware, wave after wave of immigrants from China, Japan, the Philippines, Mexico, and then depression era migrants from middle America uh, came into the state and were played off against each other. This book, In the Struggle, is a look at the role of scholarship in critiquing engaging California industrial agribusiness and the effect of the agglomeration of land holdings on communities and on workers. Uh, the, the book goes in depth on the work of eight scholars. And what's moving to me is that two of those individuals, Isao Fujimoto and Don Villarejo, were the two persons who most influenced me as mentors when I was an undergraduate at UC Davis. So their work is impeccable, It's you know it's but it's organized as research for action. Uh, and um, with the intent of informing people in disadvantaged groups to enable them to uh, engage in the policy process. So it's a great story that illustrates how research can stay engaged with the values that brought us into this field of work in the first place. Hmm. Wow. Great recommendation. Okay. Well, thanks so much, Dallas. It really has been a pleasure. Um, and I'm sure there will be other opportunities to talk to you in the future, but, but this was a great one to start with. So thank you again. Thank you, Kristen. It's really a pleasure. You've been listening to Resources Radio. Learn how to support resources for the future at rff.org support. If you have a minute, we'd really appreciate you leaving us a rating or a comment on your podcast platform of choice. Also, feel free to send us your suggestions for future episodes. Resources Radio is a podcast from Resources for the Future. RFF is an independent, nonprofit research institution in Washington, D.C. Our mission is to improve environmental, energy, and natural resource decisions through impartial economic research and policy engagement. The views expressed on this podcast are solely those of the podcast guests and may differ from those of RFF experts, its officers, or its directors. RFF does not take positions on specific legislative proposals. Resources Radio is produced by Elizabeth Wasson with music by Daniel Ramey. Join us next week for another episode.